Well, welcome, everybody. Good to see some of you and hear some of you. I hope everybody's hearing me and everything's okay. I'm going to make sure <clears throat> in terms of the last week there may have been a little issue. But anyway, we're going to begin uh, chapter four in our study of the book of Romans. Um, this is a, uh, a very important chapter, and it really it illustrates kind of the high point of the argument that Paul is making here in the book of Romans. You might remember last week as we studied uh, quite thoroughly the end of chapter 3 is where you see the heart of the book, that we are justified, that's a forensic legal term, by faith, not by works, not by the law. But Paul has to answer a question. That argument that he's made begs a question. And that question is, what about the Old Testament saints? What about the people before Jesus? Because he has talked about you are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And he developed that a little bit last week. So that, that makes a very important issue. And it's an issue, a question I should maybe say, that I have been asked countless times <laughs> over the decades of, of my public ministry in, in an academic setting and in the church. How do we talk about Old Testament saints? How do we talk about the people before Christ? And so I would imagine, uh, Paul is writing this uh, uh, book, this letter from Corinth. He's sitting there in Corinth and saying, hmm, who am I going to use to illustrate the point I want to make? That even in the Old Testament, you were justified by faith. If I were writing it, and I know you're all thankful I'm not, but if I were writing the book, I probably would have chosen Moses because Moses was the giver of the law. He, was, he is the, the ideal person for the Jew in the sense that he represents the law. He represents everything that they stood for in, 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 their, in their traditions. But he doesn't do that. He chooses Abraham. So he goes back. Uh, Abraham lives about 2150 B.C., and so he goes back over 2,000 years to Abraham. Why do you think he chose Abraham? Well, probably the main reason is he is the father of the Jewish, race, uh, Jewish nation, father of Jewish people. God chose him. As you go back all the way to Genesis 12, God chose him to be the vehicle blessing. God chose him to be what he will become, a paradigm of faith. He chose him because if there's any man who illustrates faith in a situation that all of us would say, what you are saying you're going to do, God, is ridiculous. I'm pushing 100 years old, and you're going to give me a son? And, you know, just that absurd, in humanly speaking, situation. So he chooses him. And so he, he, his argument in chapter 4 is absolutely brilliant. To me, here is, if there's a chapter, and I maybe should say that about every chapter in the Book of Romans, but if there's a chapter that really illustrates his brilliance, it's this chapter. Because by the time you're done with chapter 4, it's irrefutable. What he has argued about Abraham is irrefutable. It's, it's a brilliant presentation of this thesis. God always justifies by faith, past, present, and future. So he starts with a foundational question, verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say 
was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. Forefather, to the Jewish person, that would mean a lot. To the non-Jewish person, assuming they have some familiarity with the Old Testament, that would mean something. To the person who's not familiar with the Old Testament, it's going to be important that they become familiar with it. So the hypothetical question is Abraham. Then he proposes, in verse 2, a hypothetical solution. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, that's an interesting way to put it. If he's justified by works, because that's part of his argument in the book of Romans, you are either justified by faith or you're justified by works. You are either declared righteous by, by God by faith in his son, or you're justified, you're declared righteous by what you did. You earned it. You merited it. And so how Paul words this is quite instructive. If he were justified by works, he has something to boast about. And that's the heart of the criticism. That's the heart of the bankruptcy of justification by works. It leads to boasting. What it means is, I did more than you did. That's why I'm in heaven. Or you can imagine, this is in a sense silly, but maybe it isn't that silly. You have human beings who have been redeemed in heaven with their thumbs in their, their suspenders saying, Joel, you know what I did to get here? Sit down, let me tell you. And you take out a scroll and you start listing all the wonderful things you did. But Paul adds, but not before God. That is not what God is interested in. Justification by works as a doctrine results in boasting. Because humans, that's their proclivity. Humans can say, I earned this. I did it better than you did. That's why I'm here. But that's not what God's interested in. So what he has to do, he, Paul, has to show that's not what justified Abraham. Because all of us would probably agree, if anyone deserved justification, it was Abraham. I mean, he and Sarah waited 25 years for their son. And he traveled all over the Middle Eastern world for God, just obeying what God had asked him to do. If anybody deserved it, it was Abraham. Paul says, no, he missed the whole point. So what he does is he goes back to Scripture in verse 3. How was, he, how was Abraham justified? Well, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, he's quoting from Genesis 15, 6. In this chapter, he will quote or allude to Genesis 15, 6 four times. He will use the word counted 11 times in this chapter. Now, I don't know all the translations we have here, either online or here in the, in the room, 
But do all of you have counted? It was counted to him as righteousness? Reckoned. Reckoned? Credit. Credit. Okay, see, they, we got three different translations, all translating the, the Greek word logizothai. That's the Greek word. I read the EFE translation, counted. I think the reason they're using counted as the translation is because logizothai was a merchant's term. It was a term used in banking. <laughs> it was a term used in commerce. The, kind of the way we would talk about it today in 2022. Uh, here's the spreadsheet of Abraham's life, an Excel spreadsheet. And at the bottom of that spreadsheet, when everything is added up, everything is counted up, what's the bottom line? It is counted to him as righteous. God, God said, you believed what I have said to you. You've responded to faith, in, in faith to what I've declared. He believed God. God said, I'm going to give you a covenant son. I mean, God kept promising all these promises, and Abraham believed. Abraham trusted what God was saying. And the result is this, and that's why it's, it's a, I like the translation counted, because God, God takes this and says, at the bottom, I am going to put righteous. It's not because of what you earn. It's not because of how well you invested or how you leveraged all the things. No, it's I am saying the bottom line of your life, I'm counting it as righteousness. And it's an alien righteousness, um, if I use that. Do you know what I mean by that? It's not the righteousness of Abraham, and it's not the righteousness that he earned. It's the righteousness that God applies to his life. It's the righteousness of God. And he declares Abraham righteous. This is 21, around 2136 B.C. or so. That's over 4,000 years ago. Here's a man who believed what God was saying, listened to God, obeyed God. He didn't earn it. He didn't merit it. And God said, I declare him righteous. I count him as righteous in my eyes. And so that becomes an axiom of Scripture. And that axiom is this, God always justifies by faith. It is never by works. And that's why, I mean, I, in my life, I've heard this. I heard a pastor from a pulpit one time. In the Old Testament, you were justified by keeping the law. You were saved by keeping the law. But then grace came and you are now justified, you're saved by faith. Men, I'm going to be using a harsh, harsh word here. That's heresy. That's heretical teaching. That is not what the Bible says. And Paul, Paul is, is distilling that down to a simple proposition. God always justifies by faith. And the, the, the person he uses to, to buttress that argument is Abraham. But for maybe because we just studied Genesis. Paul really shouldn't have to be telling this to the Jews, right? Correct. <laughs> but remember, this is one of the, the sad things of, about Judaism by the first century. Much of Judaism, especially that advocated by the Pharisees, had deteriorated into a legalistic crisis. Well, you earn it. You keep the Sabbath. Okay, that's good. God, God's looking with favor, because you keep the Sabbath. And if you do it a little more, 
and you, 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 keep the, you keep all of the ceremonial laws and you keep all the feast days and you do all the right sacrifices at the right time in the right way, then God will look with favor upon you. That legalism. They've morphed into legalism. Exactly. That's the tragedy of Judaism. And that's why the people running around following Paul, and he points this out in the book of Galatians, we give them the label Judaizers. They're saying, okay, you put your faith in Jesus, but you also need to keep the law. And to put it in the language Paul used, you're teaching that you're justified by faith plus works, which is, you know, I, I hope I don't offend anybody, which remains today the basic theology of the Roman Catholic Church. That's still what they teach. We like faith, it's important faith, but you have to justify by works. And if you, if you haven't satisfied everything God wants, then you have to spend X number of years in purgatory. To purge yourself of that temple that you owe to God, because you didn't do enough. So, anyway, I, I, I got well, it was all Bill's fault. I got off the track there. So, <laughs> but you, you see, he's laying down his thesis now in these first three verses about Abraham. But you can just imagine, and, and I'm certainly this is this would have been what some of the Jewish people would have said. But but but, but Paul. What about good works? What about circumcision? What about the law? So he begins to answer that in verses 4 through 25. And first of all, verses 4 through 15, he answers it negatively. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted, there's that word, as a gift, but as his due. He earned it. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So what he's saying is Abraham was not justified by good works. He was justified by faith. And, Dave, and, and, and Paul says, listen, to, to prove this, to illustrate this, to document this, to verify this, to further validate this, I want to quote from David. And I want to quote from, he's quoting from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. I want to quote from the great penitential psalm of David. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are David's great penitential psalms. The psalms that he wrote after his horrific sin with Bathsheba and all Uriah and all that. Look at what he says. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's that word, logizathai, count. So he takes the, the lowest point of David's life in his walk with God. And David is saying, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Covered, we got a word atonement from that. Because atonement means to cover sin. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What Paul, what Paul is saying is, God counted righteousness apart from his work. David is accepted as righteous, not because of what he did. My, oh, my, oh, my. 
He should not have been counted as righteous by his faith. And, and forgiven, covered, God not count his sin. That's the life of faith, not the life of works. So Paul says, Abraham, as well as anybody else, is not saved, justified by good works. Secondly, he's not justified by circumcision, verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing, I'm in verse 9, is this blessing then, or you could translate that therefore, only for the circumcised? Or for the, or is it also for the uncircumcised? That's a Jewish question. Is justification only for the Jews, the circumcised? Or is it for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. There's that word again, counted. He keeps using it. Look, it's a thought. He keeps using it over and over again. How then was it counted to him, to Abraham? Okay, two things. Question. Circumcision or uncircumcision? Is, it, is, is justification for the circumcised or the uncircumcised? Well, let's look at Abraham. I've already argued that God counted as righteousness Abraham because he put his faith in him. Well, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? So that's the question. Circumcision comes up as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17. What did Paul quote from? Genesis 15, 6. So Abraham is justified before he was circumcised. Abraham was justified before God instituted circumcision as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what he's saying. It's a very important question, but it's a very obvious question. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Settles the question. Here's the Jew. How was Abraham circumcised? How was Abraham justified? Well, obviously circumcision is the sign of the covenant. Oh no, time out. No, that's not right. The Bible says he believed God, it was credited to him, counted to him, reckoned him as righteousness. Two chapters, actually quite a few years before he was circumcised. So circumcision, in terms of justifying faith, is irrelevant. It's not irrelevant as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, but it's irrelevant in terms of salvation. And notice what he says in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness they had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. There's two words, sign, again, I, I'm hoping all of your translation translated that way in verse 11. Sign and seal are really important. It's a sign. It documented, it illustrated, it, it manifested that seal of righteousness, which was the ratification of his position. And it's just saying, listen, circumcision follows Abraham's faith. And because Abraham was justified by, justified by his faith in God, he believed God, God then institutes circumcision as a sign of his faith and a seal, a ratification of his position. But it doesn't have anything to do with his justification. Following? So it's a sign and a seal of what he had already done in putting his faith in God. Circumcision follows 
his faith. Now, let's take, let's try to apply that, if I can, I think it will work, to the covenant relationship you and I have with God. You and I are in an unconditional, unilateral relationship with God, a covenant relationship with God. What covenant is it? The new covenant. How do you enter into that covenantal relationship with God? You put your faith in him. You believe that Jesus Christ died for your sin, was resurrected, and, and, and did all of that in your place as your substitute. You're now justified. Then the seal and the sign of that is the act of baptism where you publicly identify with Christ and the reception of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the New Testament says the Holy Spirit is the seal, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, the seal of our justification. So it's really amazing to me how the parallel between these covenants works its way through the scriptures. And so what Paul is saying, it's quite amazing. Don't misunderstand circumcision. But when you apply it to, to, to Abraham's life, absolutely, you see it in Scripture. But remember, it follows his faith. It does not precede his faith. It is not a condition of his faith. It is not the means of God justifying him. It's because he was justified, God institutes the covenant, at least a sign of the covenant. It's a sign. It's a seal. That was a question raised in Antioch that, just brought Paul exactly. to the Jerusalem Council, and the letter sent back to Antioch said that circumcision was not required to, to be have faith. And because that was a that was a big issue in those early uh, years of the church. Well, shouldn't all these Gentiles that are coming in there, shouldn't they be circumcised? And that Acts 15 forever settles that. No. Yes. You didn't talk about using Moses if you were choosing, but does Moses have these clear markers that Abraham has? Not not quite as clear. That's why I think he chose it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's just that Moses is the hero. Everybody keeps bringing up Moses. You know, every time that Pharisees get into a debate with Jesus, they always run, well, Moses said, and Jesus said, yeah, but Moses also said this. This is a great debate. So, I mean, isn't this marvelous what he's doing? If he can prove this about Abraham, which I think he is doing, if he can prove this about Abraham, that Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith. And that's the axiom. That's how God always justifies. Doctor Eckman. Uh, yes. I have a, how how do how do Jews deal with this chronological issue today? I mean, when they just as they look at Genesis, how do they deal with that? That it's it's a little complicated, but maybe the simplest way to put it, Rob, is this. A Jewish person, assuming they're even thinking about it in this way, but a Jewish person would say, remember, they, they would not accept that Jesus is the Messiah or anything like that, so you have to kind of set that aside. But they would say that you need to put your faith in God, but you maintain that faith through circumcision, through the keeping of the law and the Sabbath and all of the elements of the law. And that's why, in a very real sense, the, the typical Jewish rabbi today is arguing you are, you become righteous by faith, but you maintain that righteousness 
by your works doing the law. And if you don't do that, then you are not really a Jew. You never really put your faith in God in the first place. Now, I mean, there's another side to that, but I, I, if I don't need to, I'd really not get into that. But basically, again, if faith begins your journey with God, keeping the law and circumcision where it starts and all that is how you maintain that. So you, the, the assumption then is, in effect, you can lose that relationship with God. So I don't know if I'm, and, and in terms of Abraham, what they, because remember, they're not going to read Romans 4 to answer that question. <laughs> they're not going to read that. What they're going to say is, well, Abraham trusted God, believed God, and God rewarded him with circumcision. And now we follow that because that's the sign now of that covenantal relationship. So they see Genesis 17 as reward of Genesis 15. That's not what Paul's arguing. He's saying Genesis 17 is a sign, a seal of what happened in Genesis 15. That's not the language they use in modern Judaism. Does that sort of start to get an answer yes, to the question? thank you. Yes. Now I want you to notice something else. Paul could have stopped there. In other words, he could have stopped at verse 11, and everybody would have shaken their head and said, okay. But he doesn't. He adds something else. There, in God's eyes, there were two purposes for doing this. These are infinitive purpose clauses in the Greek language, but that doesn't mean anything to you, but that's what it is. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted. There's that word again as well. So let's take that first purpose clause and put it into a simple statement. Abraham becomes the model of how God justifies. That's why the New Testament, James calls him this, Paul calls him this. He's the father of those who believe. Not the biological father, that's not what it means. The spiritual father, he's the spiritual paradigm. God justified Abraham by his faith, because of his faith, nothing else. And what Paul was just saying, he's now the model. He's, quote, the spiritual father, quote, quote, of both the uncircumcised and the circumcised, if you believe. But there's a second purpose. To make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had had before he was circumcised. That is nailing the Jewish person. Circumcision without faith is meaningless. It proved that. You can have circumcision, but if you don't have faith, it's meaningless. So two purposes to, you know, the 100,000-foot view of why God did it this way. Purpose number one, he, Abraham, is the paradigm of how you're justified. Purpose number two, relating circumcision to faith. Those who are circumcised, if they truly have faith, will walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Because faith preceded circumcision. So circumcision without 
faith is meaningless. And, by, and man, that is exactly what Jeremiah chapter 4 says. That's exactly, this isn't a new truth, or all of a sudden somebody dumps this new truth onto the Jewish people in A.D. 57, roughly when he wrote this, this epistle. No! This has been consistently a part of the, new test, uh, of the Old Testament teaching. And a wonderful place to start thinking about it is in Jeremiah 4. But Jeremiah says what God is really interested in structures from the heart. It doesn't matter whether you're, in terms of your eternal destiny, it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised physically or not. Circumcision of the heart, that's Jeremiah talks about it, Jeremiah 4 4. Okay, um, so that's the second point negatively. He was not justified by works, verses 4 through 8. He was not justified by circumcision, verses 9 through 12. And he was not justified by keeping the law. That's verses 13 through 15. Are you with me so far? Isn't this is masterful how he's mm -hmm. doing this, isn't it? 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, uh, the Greek word there is sperma, get a word sperm from that, but means his offspring by faith, his spiritual offspring, that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, that's, that's a proposition that's very easy to understand, that the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world. Uh, let's stop for a minute. That's a rather unique phrase there, heir of the world. What are you talking about? Well, it starts in Genesis 12, 3. Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed. Paul picks up on that in Galatians 3 and 4, for example. Other authors in the New Testament do it, but that's really where it's quite clear. Paul picks up on that and says, listen. The blessing there is the blessing of salvation, the blessing of justification. And the result of that is you're a joint heir with Christ. So way back in 2136 B.C. or so, when God first uttered those words to Abraham, and it's unfolded through the rest of Scripture, and yet the Apostle Paul who says, now listen, I want you to really understand in God's redemptive plan and his rescue plan of history that this blessing is the blessing of salvation. And for those who receive that blessing of salvation by faith, they are joint heirs with Christ. They will rule and reign over this planet. In the language of Revelation 20, in the thousand-year reign of Christ. And that's a promise for you, and that's a promise for me. So Paul can say to Abraham and his spiritual offspring, those who are also justified by faith, they will be heirs of the world. Now, that's a promise. That is a promise you and I can claim. And I, I'm preaching on through a part of Acts in my church, I'm doing an eight-week series, and we're just getting started. But last week I was in the, the blessing of uh, Pentecost. Martin Luther, May 24th, AD 33, that one of the results of that, that enormously important blessing 
that comes through the institution of the new covenant and all that are a series of promises. And one of the application points I had for the church was, I want you to go home and make a list of the promises God has made you. I don't know how many people, I can't check that. It's not homework. <laughs> I won't find out this Sunday how many did it. But I hope a few did it, because that's one of the most rewarding things we can possibly do. Make a list of the promises. I'm telling you, if you're diligent, that list is going to be a long list. But one of those promises is I will be a joint heir with Jesus in the coming kingdom. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's an amazing, it's an amazing declaration of this grand sweep of history. History's headed somewhere. It's headed toward the return of Christ and him setting up his kingdom. When we pray it in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth in heaven, that prayer will be answered when Christ returns. And Paul puts it this way. Abraham and all those who are justified by faith are heirs of the world. That did not come through keeping the law. Because the law followed Abraham by five, almost 600 years. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Because in the way he's arguing this, you've got 600 years between Abraham and the giving of the law. It would be impossible to argue that Abraham was justified by keeping the law because that doesn't happen for 600 more years. And if that's true, then faith is null and the promise is void. That's a pretty, pretty forceful statement. Well, the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there's no transgression. No, no transgression. Now, what, what exactly does he mean by that? Well, the important, we've talked about this before, but I don't know if you remember it, in an earlier section of, the, of this book. One of the purposes of the law was to demonstrate and prove the sinfulness of sin. That sounds a little redundant there. But don't let it be. It's, it's, it's an accurate way to say it. What the law does is it defines clearly the moral character of God, which is what the Ten Commandments really are. The moral character of God revealed and what righteousness means to God. So God will boldly say, if you want... Actually, Jesus says it this way. But if you want to be saved by keeping the law, then you have to keep every single precept of the law perfectly. Has anyone ever done that? No. And so, listen, what the law does is it brings God's wrath because it is that supposition that I can earn my way to God. And what he adds, this is the end of that, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. And the word transgression, he uses the word transgression. It's a very specific Greek word, parabolsis. Parabolsis is the Greek word. It's a very technical term. That transgression is the clarity 
of God's moral will and moral character revealed. If you don't have the law, you don't have that clarity. Are you still guilty before God? Yes. See Romans 1, 18 through 3.20. But he said, he said, listen, what the law brings is not salvation. It's how you walk with God. And by not keeping the law, it brings God's wrath. So there has to be another way for us to be saved. What is that other way? By faith. All right? So three things, verses 4 through 22. Abraham was justified by faith, not by works, not by circumcision, not by keeping the law. Now, positively, that's verse 13 through 25. That is why it depends on faith. There's a little neuter pronoun there, it. Now, you know what a pronoun is. Pronoun has an antecedent. What's it referring to? For that is why it depends on faith. What's the it? Justification. That's been the whole argument. Depends on faith. In order that, the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It is grace through faith that produces the promise. What promise? To be an heir of the world, to be justified and all of the blessings that come with it. We've come full circle now. It, justification, depends on faith. And he brings it this wonderful phrase. In order that the promise may rest on grace, not works, but on grace. And the paradigm of salvation, you see it quite wonderfully in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, is we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so he's just reiterating, reiterating that premise. If it's not by circumcision, and it's not by good works, and it's not by keeping the law, it's by faith. And faith rests. I'm going to use a, a metaphor here. Faith rests on the foundation of God's grace. The whole plan of salvation, the whole rescue plan of God is founded on his grace. For by grace, through faith, we're justified. God's great. Everything that involves the salvation message, the acts of Jesus on his cross, burial, resurrection, etc., that is God's grace in action. And our response to that is faith. So by grace, through faith, we're justified. This is not just for people who follow the law, i.e. the Jews, but for everyone. Therefore, Abraham is the father of us all, the spiritual father of us all. 
And then he goes back to the Old Testament, and he's quoting from Genesis again. As it is written, I, God, have made you the father of many nations. That's Genesis 12, 3, it's Genesis 17, 5. That God is, excuse me, Abraham is the universal father of all who believe. In the presence of God in whom he believed. Now, I want you to notice something here. Paul could have put a period right after that in the presence of the God in whom he believed, period. But he doesn't do that. He uses a relative clause to define two attributes of God. Father of many nations, promise I told you Abraham's going to do that. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and who calls into existence things that do not exist. Why did Paul do it that way? Why did he feel it's necessary, believe it's necessary, think it's necessary to talk about those two attributes of God? Talking about justification. Talking about a promise he made to Abraham, who responds to that promise in faith. This is the God who gives life to the dead. Now that can mean and does mean resurrection. But it can also mean in the in Abraham and Sarah's life, her womb was dead. She was 90 years old. He was a hundred. He brought physical life out of a dead womb. That's a miracle. That's the power of God. Only God can do that. Not in the resurrection, but specifically applied to Abraham's life, birth of the covenant son. But then he says something else. This is one of the passages of the scriptures that we will use to define ex nihilo creation. Do you know what I mean by ex nihilo creation? Out of nothing who calls into existence things that did not exist. Before God created anything, only God existed. And he speaks things into creation. This is the power of the God Abraham believed. And that's important for you and me to remember. Men, I want to tell you, this is really important. I challenge you sometimes to check this out. How many times the Bible stresses God as creator? It's over and over and over. Why? Why, did, why do it that way? I mean, that's how the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created heaven. It starts that way. But it's just read it over and over. Why? But you got to remember something. The power of God is manifested, first and foremost, in his creation. And this text is telling you ex nihilo, out of nothing. And it's really quite amazing how much of modern physics doesn't want to accept that. Because modern physics makes the argument of the eternality of matter. Matter has always existed. And you know what I mean by matter, don't you? I mean, even the Big Bang, there was this enormous impact in matter that exploded. 
But you still have to answer this question. Well, what caused that to explode? Mm -hmm. Of course, that anyway. It's really it's fascinating, and there, there's a wonderful a wonderful song in that movie that you and I all love as men: The Sound of Music. <laughs> <laughs> Our wives love it, but if you if you've ever seen it, I I, I just it strikes me because I never forget this when I'm thinking of creation. Christopher Plummer and Julie Andrews are outside a gazebo or something. They're singing. And one of the songs, one of the, the, the lyrics in this particular song is, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever will. That's good lyrics to a, a wonderful musical, but that's great science. Nothing ever, ever, ever produces nothing. Nothing comes from nothing. It always will. There has to be something for there to be something. <laughs> And this is this is the this is the premise of what it's a Latin phrase. The premise of ex nihilo creation: God creates out of nothing. The Bible is just insisting. I, I do a little <clears throat> thing, and uh, we we have a training class at our church called Marchman, and I teach that. And I have a whole session just on God as Creator. And what I do is I go through all. I give them a, it's five six pages of all the references in the Bible to God as creator. How important that is to God, but how important it is for you and me. How important it is to Scripture. Scripture keeps saying, one thing I want you to keep remembering, God is not only the Redeemer, God is not only the Savior, God is the creator of everything. And I have often wondered, I really have, I thought, why in this modern and now postmodern world, why do so many people chafe at the teaching that God is the creator of everything. I reached this conclusion. If you believe God created everything, there's a corollary that goes with that. You are now accountable to that God. Because if he created everything, that means he created you. You're not just a cosmic accident. You're not some freak accident. In the words of David in Psalm 139, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. But that automatically means we're accountable. Because this creator has the right to set the boundaries. He sets the physical boundaries for this world. I would not go out on this roof and jump off. Because there's a law called gravity that I would probably kill myself. At best, I'd break some bones. That's silly. It's stupid to jump off a building. Because the physical law of gravity stipulates a consequence. But we don't want to talk about that when it comes to moral law. I'm totally free and totally autonomous. And Paul is saying the power of the God who saves is the power of God who raises the dead and the power of God who creates everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo creation. I'm glad Paul added that because the doctrine of salvation is rooted in the character and power of a God who raises the dead and creates ex nihilo. If he has the power to do those two things, he has the power to justify. All right. As my pastor often says, there was a great place to say, no, man, but you missed it. <clears throat> now, I don't know if we're going to get this done, but 18 through the end of this section, 
Paul begins to tie this together in a marvelous way about Abraham. He begins in verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. You stop there for a minute. That's a, 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 an unusual phrase because he uses the word hope in two ways. There are two prepositional phrases, in hope and against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. What is he talking about? In the hope of the future promises that God had made to him. And you, the nations, will be blessed. I'm going to give your people, Leo and your people, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky, sand the seashore. That's the future hope. He believed what God had said. God justified him on the basis of that faith. So that's his hope. I believe what God's telling me about the future. Against, that's another unusual, against hope. What hope? Against the present hope. What was the present hope? Well, in order for all these three things to happen, I have to have a son. I don't have a son. So the present hope is, well, God promised me a son. He's made all these marvelous promises to me, but he promised me a son. So in hope about the future, he believed against the present hope. I don't have a son yet. I don't have a covenant son. And as you know, because we studied the patriarchs months ago, he and Sarah waited 25 years for Isaac to be born. So in against his hope, in his hope of the future promises of God, he believed against the hope, I still don't have a son. Well, I'll tell you, man, when you put it that way, he's a man of extraordinary faith, isn't he? And he waited 25 years. That's why he will declare the end of verse 18, that she should become the father of many nations. As he'd been told, so shall your offspring be. Genesis 15, 5. Now, uh, I think I can do this. In 19 and in 20, we see three three aspects, a threefold dimension of this man's faith. Verse 19, first of all, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So the first aspect, first characteristic, first description of Abraham's faith, he did not weaken in his faith. Despite the obvious absurdity of what God had promised. Number two, verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. Some translations have no doubts made him waver. That's the idea concerning the promise of God. Third characteristic, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Threefold description of faith. Did not weaken, did not doubt, grew strong. Now that's, now listen to me. 
That's God's perspective of Abraham. And you're sitting there, wait a minute. Abraham did, he has, he was down to Egypt and he lies about Sarah. Sarah said, look, this ain't going to happen. Take my, take my servant, Hannah, and you have sex on the ground. That's how we're going to, and does he do that? Yes. There's some bones. But God's looking at Abraham's life and saying, listen, he had some bumps like we all do, but he did not weaken. Overall, he did not doubt. Overall, he's progressively growing stronger in his faith. He's progressively growing stronger in his trust in me. I, don't, I know you guys, but I don't really know any of you very well. But if we could sit down and talk about your life since you began your walk with the Lord, your journey with him, I would think that's probably the three things that we would say about you. There are times when you stumble, times when you down, times up, but did not weaken. Overall, did not doubt. Keep coming back to the Lord. And three, you're growing stronger. That's the journey we're on. That's, let's use a New Testament word. That's sanctification. This is God's big picture view of Abraham's life. Oh, uh, there were bumps. And there, there were times when he, he did things that didn't please me. He said that about everybody. But overall, he did not weaken, did not doubt. He grew stronger in his faith. And he gave glory to God, fully convinced he was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith, there's this word again, was counted, legizathai, to him as righteous. It is his faith that justified him. But the words that was counted to him were not written for our, his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And here again, what we saw earlier in the text, Abraham's the paradigm. So we look at Abraham's life. We study Abraham's life. We see did not weaken, did not doubt, but grew stronger. This is all for our sake. So we can be justified. But we are justified by believing God. Believing what? And he raised him from the dead, delivered him up for our trespass, using that same word, parabasis, that we saw earlier, and raised for our justification. Cross and resurrection fulfill the promise God made. And we believe. We believe that's what God did for us. We're justified. Oh, I'm so thankful. We're, we're almost out of time. I'm so thankful we got through chapter four in one session. Do, do, do you have any questions about chapter four? Any guys online or here in the room? It's a, it's a marvelous chapter to work through. And it just validates his thesis that we are justified by faith. We only have a minute left, but um, I'd love next week for you to revisit the um, the Catholicism point of view that you kind of did a glancing touch to. Um, why in the world, if it was, if its ancestry comes from Paul, would they have this perspective? We only have a minute. Don't, don't answer that today. But just, you always leave us with a cliffhanger. I'll leave you with one for next week. How about that? <laughs> okay. That's a, 
Well, it, 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 there is there's a similarity there in that adding to faith works. There's something we have to do. Glenn, it, it really um, it is an historical question, and it can be, only be answered historically over a thousand right. years. Absolutely. Because it was incremental. Um, I mean, it just, it, you know, it, it didn't happen in, in 490 AD when Gregory, who is usually regarded as the first real pope of the institutionalized church, declared it. That's not true. But it, it's incremental. It's over a period of time. And I will, uh, I'll bore everybody stiff if I try <laughs> to give you a thousand year history lesson, but I'll try to hit high points next week of how that progressively developed and, and why it became so central because that that very point is what Martin Luther rejected and, and really revolted against in starting in 1517. So oh, sure. I'll do my best to summarize it. Um, so is well, that okay? No, that's great. And even the Church of England and the Protestant denominations off of it, you still see common threads in the Protestants. Oh my goodness! Yes, it's, it's deep, right? So, yeah, interesting. Well, Thank remember you. the Angli- the Anglican Church, which is the state church of England, also right. broke from the Catholic Church. But under Elizabeth, they they made a compromise. We will be we will be Protestant in our theology, but Catholic in our ritual. It's called the the Elizabethan Compromise, and that that defines the Anglican Church. They are Protestant in theology, but the ritual is Catholic. Uh, I mean, uh, all the stuff that you, you see in Ticket oh, High. And, and so look it's, at, yeah, yeah, look at Methodists, look at Presbyterians, look at Church of Nazarenes, yes. and, yes. and there are still elements that are there. Yes. Well, that, that that's that's right. So I'll do my best to make a very, 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 and then notice all those varies. Lots of adverbs there. <laughs> I'm really going to do my best to, to do a brief summary. Because it really Thank can you. only be explained that way. All right, uh, maybe I better uh, not. I better. I need to uh, pray here, and we'll let you go. I hope this was a blessing to you. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Book of Romans because it's so clear what he's arguing. Our Father, we thank you for the Book of Romans that we are privileged to study together. It's in in one real sense. It's one of the most important books of the whole Bible. Um, because it's very theological, but it really distills down to all of us the importance of justification by faith. We really need to understand that. And to not understand it leads to the errors that we've briefly talked a little bit about, highlighting, or keep us from error. We are not justified by anything we do or anything we deserve. It's by faith, rooted, grounded in, uh, solidified in your grace. It's by grace, your grace through our faith, that we are justified. We owe you everything, Lord. Help us help us to bring glory and honor to you because this is all of what you did through Jesus for us. We just appropriate all of it by faith in our lives. We're men of strong faith, and because we're men of strong faith, that have, it's not weakened, it doesn't doubt, it's growing each day, and therefore we want to represent you. That's why you keep us here. That's why you saved us, to be your representative. Words of Jesus, Father, as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And we are therefore your ambassadors. So we want to do that faithfully. Thank you for the joy, for the satisfaction, for the peace, for the contentment, for the purpose, for the meaning you give us 
in our lives because of what Jesus has done for us. Be with a couple of the guys. Apparently, Fred's not feeling well today. Be with the, some of the other guys who aren't well or traveling or whatever. We look forward to regathering again in Christ's name. We pray, Amen.